Welcome to Press Play and Surrender. I'm your host, Owen McQuinn, and I'm an Irish filmmaker and actor. This is my chance to speak to artists of all kinds, as well as industry players, from up-and-comers to established talent. It's a space for in-depth conversation, where personal insights and unexpected tangents are very much encouraged. You're listening to Press Play and Surrender. My guest today is Mary-Kate O'Flanagan. Mary-Kate is a highly regarded story consultant, writer and screenwriting teacher. She has taught workshops and masterclasses internationally and has several of her own projects in development. I also had her as a tutor on my screenwriting MA where I gained great insight into the craft thanks to her expertise. So here's my conversation with Mary-Kate O'Flanagan. You know, it's interesting. I've had to think about this a bit myself because I'm doing some other work where I had to write a bio. And really what it boils down to is probably like a lot of your listeners and you, that I would say story is the central preoccupation of my life. So that started with I was that little kid who couldn't wait to learn to read because I couldn't bear it when story was over at night. And I always had my nose in a book and, you know, books were the first place that I consumed story. My parents were a little old fashioned, so television was sort of carefully rationed. But I grew up with five sisters who were all very close in age and we absolutely were in love with movies. And actually something I would always say is normal business was suspended in our house when there was a great movie on. Um, so, you know, it would be like a Saturday morning and suddenly like we'd all be sitting on the carpet with our bowls of cereal in our pajamas to watch a John Wayne or a Fred Astaire. That would have been my father's influence. And my mother loved all those Ealing comedies. So things like The Man in the White Suit or uh, um, Whiskey Galore, uh, The Lady Killers, things like that. You know, she loved all those old fashioned English, but really, you know, well-crafted movies. So I was always in love with the movies. I never believed that I could work in them, but my degree, my first degree was in literature. So I studied English and French with a sideline in biblical Hebrew, but that's another day's work. Um, And I really, you know, did very little academic work in college. I went to UCD and I fell in love with the drama society, Dramsoc there. And I do remember like once handing up a, an essay very late to my French tutor. He was like, you're all right. And I was like, what's that? And he went, I know what you're doing with your college years. You're down back then, uh, it was in the lower ground floor, what we call the LGs. And he said, I know what you're doing. You're pouring over literature. You're, you know, debating with the other people in society. Why does she say this line here, but she says that there? What does that mean? And he said, you're getting your education. I don't mind when you hand your essays in late. I mind the people who are just sitting around drinking coffee, you know? Um, So I had a very indifferent degree, but I completely fell in love with theatre as a way of telling a story um, in university. And I came out of university and I did a diploma in directing. I was more interested in directing than any other part of it. Um, at that stage, I occasionally wrote things to have something to direct, but um, I did a year with the Abbey and uh, then I had absolutely no idea how to build a career. <laughs> so I went right. to London and I did various jobs, but one of them was theatre critic. And okay. that was as close as I could get to being a practitioner in my 20s. Yeah. So, 
yeah that's what I did came back to Ireland when I was 30 and I was a theatre critic then for the business post um but like a lot of critics I really wanted to be involved and what happened then was like as a theatre critic I also got to cover books and film and I'd always remained an intense fan of cinema so I would have always read Empire, Premiere, Sight and Sound those were kind of the three that were my bible plus I would have read reviews anywhere else Time Out always had fantastic film reviews even if they were just short you know so I was you know qualified as much as anybody without a degree could be to be a film critic yeah and then what happened was one of my five sisters was working in film and television and Paddy Brannock is a great Irish filmmaker said to me she was working with him and he said to me would you look at a script we're reading and tell us what you think is wrong with it before we make it instead of telling the world what's wrong with it after we make it yeah, <laughs> it's a yeah. very wishy way of putting it um and I was like oh I would love to because like all critics I really well I shouldn't speak for all critics like many critics I really wanted to be a part of the creative process but I learned then that actually it's a very different set of skills and it's not easy to tell when you're looking at something on the page and I think I'm quoting somebody else and I don't remember who I'm quoting but I think it might be Neil Gaiman who says most people can tell you that that it's not working a lot of people can tell you why it's not working but very few people can tell you how to make it better right right um so i was one of those people who could say here's what it's not working and i could have opinion about why it wasn't working but it wasn't 20 years ago very informed opinion but i got lucky in that I got to go and train. I wrote something myself that got funded by what was then called the Irish Film Board, now it's called Screen Ireland. Yeah. But I also got to go and train in story in a now defunct programme that was called North by Northwest. This is a very long answer. <laughs> it's okay. No, it's fine, it's interesting. <laughs> it was I'd a love to hear. Uh, it was a pan-European training programme and it trained both writers and story editors. And it was six months over a year, but we would go and do an intensive week and then go away and do work and then come back and do another week. And everybody in a subgroup would read each other's work and then we'd spend a day workshopping. Okay, what's working, what's not? And it was a great chance, but we were guided by the professors of screenwriting at the University of Southern California. So the program was organized around the breaks in their academic year. And they were just a font of knowledge. And those men and one woman were absolute gurus. And I just wanted to know everything they knew. So a couple of years later, I had the opportunity to go back and train with them as a trainee tutor. Um, so I jumped at that chance and I did the program again twice learning their methods and the following year I got a bursary um, from Screen Training Ireland which is now called Screen Skills Ireland and I went and I observed their teaching methods in Los Angeles and I was put through my paces as a writer as well and from that grew I, a professional association so I started working 
with those men and one woman um, around Europe as, first of all, a junior associate, but they were generous enough to say, look, you've spent your life studying this material, you're well able to be our peer. So that would be like the last 18 years I've spent giving workshops and not only with them, but sometimes by myself, sometimes with my sister Rachel who's also a story editor. So that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I mean, do you find this rewarding then to see people learn and to grasp new concepts and to understand and illuminate story structure? Do you find that rewarding? It's just so rewarding. And I never forget like those first lectures with those people. And there was also a woman called Babette Buster that I should give a shout out to um, who used to come to Ireland and she was giving us all training 20 years ago. And she trained a lot of the people who are, you know, very successful in the Irish film industry now. Um, what they taught me was so new and exciting. And now because I've been thinking about it almost nonstop for 18 years, I can sometimes, I have to stop and remind myself, this is new to other people. So even though I'd been studying literature and reading and thinking and observing and consuming criticism and forming my own opinions about what I saw, I had no idea of how the shapes of stories worked. And, you know, I had an interesting experience a few years ago, my sister Rachel and I were brought in to tutor on a residential program in Wales. And it was taking four Welsh writers and upskilling them again over a period of about a year. Um, but their funders were coming to observe the work. It all took place at a residential place and was organized by that called Teen Newith, absolutely gorgeous writers retreat in Wales. But there was a guy there, I cannot remember what body he was from. Was it from Wales? I don't want to say. But in the break, he said, I spent three years at film school in London. And I understand from listening to Rachel and you in three hours this morning, I've got a better understanding of the function of the three-act structure right. than, than three years in film school gave me. So seeing people going, bing, I got it now, that's amazing. You know, being able to see people do that. You know, the part that, you know, is, is not as satisfying is that very often the way that programs are structured, there's limited funds, so you have to go, here's how it is, here's how it applies to your project, off you go and do it. And I right. always wish I could take every writer through every step yeah. of the way because theory to practice is difficult. Absolutely. Um, uh, there were a few aspects on our module I thought were particularly interesting. One of them was the what's the plan scene at the beginning of Act 2. And I never considered that you might need this scene to kind of lay out for the audience this is what to expect, and maybe things won't go according to plan. But you notice it in almost every maybe Hollywood film then from then on. Um, that's really interesting. And asking yourself as a writer, you know, at the beginning of every scene, will your main character be able to dot, dot, dot? Like it needs to be a very clear question 
will or will they or won't they be able to achieve their goal within the scope of the scene? Oh, yeah, it was. You know, those teachers from the University of Southern California that laid it out for me that clearly. Now, other people will say it in different ways. You know, Sid Field will talk about the same thing. And, you know, uh, who's uh, the hero's adventure? Uh, Joseph I don't mean that, the hero's journey. Um, Yes, Joseph Campbell, you know, he'll talk about the same thing, you know, but the way that that it's helpful for me, and I always say to people, take what is helpful to you, and leave the rest because everybody has to, you know, um, figure out how it sits right into their brain. But the way that I think about it more now is the audience wants to participate in the story. In fact, the audience needs to participate in the story. If the audience is not participating in the story, they will you'll lose their attention and they'll switch off, you know. So that what's the plan scene is the moment where you go, oh, oh, okay, I see, I see. This person is going to try to get down the mountain on their own and get help because the person that brought them up the mountain has banged their head and is unconscious, right? And if she doesn't succeed, they'll both die. I'm just making something up here, you know. And the minute that something like that happens, that this totally unqualified person has to do something that's really difficult for them the audience leans in and goes i hope she makes it but i fear that she won't right like let's say she's a troubled teen who's been brought into the wilderness because you know her well-meaning stepmother thinks it will be really good for her and she has got no you know um nature craft at all right then you go okay now i think this is going to be really interesting so that's when the audience gets a chance to participate in the story and then what you're talking about i'm so glad you retained it is that you break that down so that in each scene so you might be going she can't get to the bottom of the mountain to get help in this scene but what she's trying to do in this scene is ford the stream that snow has melted and the thing that was really easy to walk across on the way up is now a torrent of water that may that's threatening to sweep her away you know then you go okay at the level of the scene now i'm interested in that and i had no idea i mean obviously we all know this on a subconscious level because we've listened to and written in some cases and heard and told Um, and consumed so many stories on the screen or on the page since we were babies. Um, So we do know that that's how story works on a subconscious level, but I think it's really helpful to writers and directors and actors to know that, like, on a conscious level, here's how you can build a scene to get the maximum out of it, and here's how you know what to keep in your story and what you can let slip away or where you need to beef it up. Sure. I also was reminded, I watched Home Alone before Christmas, and I was reminded of how it's so important the audience will only care as much as the character cares. So when you see Catherine O'Hara's character at the airport, and she's talking to the airline, and she's like, I will go out and hitchhike on the runway. I will sell everything I own. I will sell my soul to the devil himself to get back to my son then you feel your own emotional investment building. 
And it wouldn't be the same if she just said, oh, I really need to get back to my son. Like, you know, like you need it listed out with examples of just how much she cares. Um, so, yeah, that's that's building emotional involvement, I guess, into the. Into yeah, the uh, that's really interesting that you observe that, of course, like amazing Catherine O'Hara. And it's so important in a comedy to feel that there's that heart there that everything's not just a joke you know um but it's one of the things i think that can also be really interesting in the like a parent needing to get home to a child of course we need to know she's not going ah it's kevin he'll be fine you know it's a big house he's safe you know it's in a nice area that she's going oh you know um so there's dash um but there's also like it's it's a great bit of craft when it's a relatively low stakes story you know so if you've got something that wouldn't be important to you or me have the writers made it seem really important like you know who are you going to bring to the prom you know yeah at a certain age you know you start to think i don't think this is make or break but if i understand that it is to the to the to the audience or sorry to the character then you will lean in and actually they did that really well i was talking to my sister rachel recently about a film called parenthood that she has always really loved and steve martin's character has uh, a little boy who's just got a little bit of anxiety but they're called into the school and they're talking about it. I think it's I think it's also called Kevin we'll just call him Kevin anyway <laughs> um but they're like maybe he needs to go into special classes and like a lot of parents they're like I don't want him to go into special classes and they're like the teacher is spending most of his time or her time on this it's not fair to the others and they're like let us so I mean that seems relatively small but the thing that Steve Martin gets really obsessed about is keeping the kid in his little league and he keeps throwing him and he throws some balls and throws some balls and throws some balls because he thinks if he can do okay in his baseball team he'll feel a part of and then the social anxiety may slip away you know and yeah. uh again a lot of us would go kids sports is it that important but it's played out that and in fact that again it is a comedy you know that like he has two fantasies and one is of him graduating and just going I want to dedicate and he's being honored at his graduation you know that he's the keynote speaker and he's saying I want to dedicate this to my father but the, the fantasy is that he's in the tower shooting everybody going it's all my father's fault it's all my father's fault you know so you can take things that seem relatively small or that the audience wouldn't necessarily care about like another great example completely different was did you see that movie lock oh with, with tom, tom hardy. hardy i didn't see it I really recommend it. Um, I think it's on one of the streamers, um, but I really recommend it for people who are interested to see what you can do with a low budget movie. And it's, I think most people had heard it's shot more or less in real time. The guy is driving from Birmingham to London and it's, we're almost always in the car with him. But 
he is relatively senior in construction and there's going to be a concrete pour the following morning and he needs to make sure everything gets done right but he has had to leave the site you know and so that sounds really boring but they managed to make it super interesting you know so because he cares about it and then they explain and actually in that it's not even they don't go oh if he doesn't get this right he'll lose his job it's just he cares so we start to care yeah you know which is the intensity of an actor like tom hardy who's going to bring certain gravitas i guess uh, I wanted to ask you, just switching gears a bit, in developing your own projects, what do you enjoy most mm-hmm. about collaborating with directors or producers? Well, I can't edit myself. So, you know, I can look at other people's work and be like, oh, your act one is a bit long or, you know, the life dream appears to be this, but then it gets lost halfway through. But I don't notice that when I'm lost in the world of what I'm creating. So working with other people, and I always know I'm working with a great story editor. They might be a producer or a director or an actor, you know, um, they might just be a pal of mine. But I always know I'm working with someone who's really good on story when they ask me a question that I can't answer. Because they found the gap in the story. So, you know, um, that's really, that's really fun for me, you know, and to, because also, yeah, just seeing the other perspective, you know, other people's perspective is very helpful to me. Yeah. And I was wondering also as a consultant or a tutor, is there a common flaw that you see in most new writers work? Well, I think, you know, the, the the lack of understanding of how structure supports content, you know, that, you know, structure, that all stories have a natural shape. Um, so that not that structure is an academic idea that's being imposed on creativity, but just that when you find the right shape for a story, you find the way that you're going to get other people to care about it. So... I think a lot of people, but I might be saying this because it tends to be my flaw, a lot of people have very long act ones, by which I mean they want to explain everything that's happening before the story goes up a gear. And the more that I watch with an informed eye, the more I go, "Mm, we don't need to know very much at all before the story can kick up a gear. You know, and we can be feeding out backstory more than halfway through the film, you know. So Adam and Paul, one of my favourite Irish films, is a great example of that, you know, that we get to the what's the plan scene. One of them literally says to the other one, what's the plan? Right. <laughs> and I think it's seven minutes in. I think I checked and it's seven minutes in. Um, And we're going to get to know a lot more about those two characters later, but all we need to understand in order to go on the journey with them is that they're two junkies who are out of money and out of friends, you know, but they're not out of ideas. So, you know, we go on the journey with them. And correct me if I'm wrong, but am I right in thinking the midpoint 
is the moment when the protagonist can no longer operate in the way that they had been and must adopt a new behavior. Or is that one part of the midpoint? I, can't, I try not to be completely prescriptive about this stuff. Um, but I think the way that I think about it is that it is important to acknowledge that this is just a truth about human beings and not about story, is that humans are very reluctant to change. So yeah. when you see somebody um, going, my circumstances have shifted. So the way I think about story is you've got someone in their normal life. So that's their status quo and their status quo is interrupted. And now they're faced with either an unbearable threat or an unmissable opportunity. So they formulate a plan and that's our what's the plan scene Interesting 25 minutes in. But when you or I, or Rick from Casablanca or Ryan from Gravity or Shrek decides, you know, okay, I'm confronted with something. I've got an issue here that I need to address. The way that we will usually try to deal with that is the way in which we have solved all our problems hitherto. But stories only have depth if the character is forced to change. But yes, I rarely see that change happening before the midpoint. I don't define the midpoint as that, but what I see is what I think of as the first unplanned shift in the character's strategies happens around the midpoint. Sometimes it causes the midpoint, sometimes it comes in the immediate aftermath of the midpoint, but it's in and around there. So yes, you are right in saying, and I'm just always saying to writers, like don't don't have them change too soon because mm. then they're available for change. They want to change. And that's not as interesting as watching somebody being forced to change. Does right. Uh, it does. Yeah. And do you, could you think of like a couple of examples of great midpoints? And I remember you showed us uh, Michael Clayton as part of the course and you were kind of analyzing it throughout. Um, are there one or two examples of a great midpoint for you? Oh, I mean, again, Irish filmmaker, but African story. So Hotel Rwanda, um, co-written and directed by Terry George. And that's an amazing midpoint. So if you watch Hotel Rwanda, if you've never seen it, I really warmly recommend it. And if you have seen it, watch it again, not least because it's a it's a difficult film to watch, but it's got a very uplifting ending. So it's not that bitter of a pill to follow. But we start with Paul Rousseau-Sabagina. He's a very reluctant hero. You know, he says at the beginning, his wife is like, why don't you use your connections from being a manager at a swanky hotel to help our neighbor who's been arrested almost certainly unfairly. And he says, no, I've only, mm, I've only got so many favors. I'm storing them up. One day you or I, or someone belonging to us is going to need them. So no, I do not get involved with helping other people. And right at the beginning of act two, the genocide has started and he's trying to just get his own family to safety, but his wife insists on bringing all the neighbors and the gardener to, um, but he's very reluctant um, to take responsibility for anyone else. 
and then the Red Cross are like, oh, we hear you're taking people in. We've got 32 wanted orphans for you, etc. And he's all the time, oh, no, please, I don't want this. And there's a very beautiful midpoint in that where they've been working the phones and trying to reach all their contacts overseas. And the UN arrives and they're like, they're here, they're here, they've come to rescue us. And the music swells and it's like, often a midpoint will be big and joyous. You know, when everybody who can logically be there will be there. So often it will be like a wedding or it'll be a big dance or, you know, if it's a love story, the lovers will share a kiss or some kind of closeness at that moment. And so there's just like, you're just like, oh my goodness, everyone's celebrating. And then he realizes, oh, they've only come for the foreign nationals, basically the white people. And he then has to say to everybody there, like, let them go. And Hotel Rwanda has the shape of a tragedy, although it has a final fillip that means that it's actually a very uplifting ending. But so that midpoint is really low. And, you know, I often use Hotel Rwanda as a teaching film and I always just have to say in advance, I'm going to weep <laughs> because no matter how many times I watch it, yeah. it wrings the emotion out of me um, that actually everybody has to stand back. But that's the moment where Paul goes, they can't stay. We're not begging them. You know, we'll take care of ourselves. And I will help take care of you. So the first shift for him has taken place. And it's just one of my all-time favorite midpoints, you know, yeah. for that reason. That's cool. That's really interesting. Um, I also wanted to know, how do you view the landscape of film today in terms of both Ireland and internationally? Do you think there's as many great films being made? I think it's impossible to say, you know, because I was like always mad about movies. My father got me a massive coffee table book. I think it was Christmas. I was 17 or 18, which was the RKO story. And I always loved all those like Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn kind of comedy of manners, you know, and I was RKO in a lot of those. And I, you know, and I grew up and my mother disapproved of how obsessed with film my sisters and I were and refused to get a VCR. <laughs> so we would just like look up in the listings, what movies on, and it was actually great because you would watch something from the 1920s because you didn't have a lot of or 30s or 40s because you wouldn't have um, a great breadth of choice. So I was always like, how come they made only brilliant films back in the 30s and 40s and 50s? And then when I got the RKO story, I was like, oh no, it's just that we only still watch the you know, 10 a year that were brilliant because there would be 90 in a year that you never right. heard of, you know, and they're only of interest to film historians, really. So I probably, I think that we're probably still making about the same proportion of good movies. Right. The Irish film industry, everyone's saying this, but, you know, I will say I was saying it three years ago. <laughs> um, But the Irish film industry is coming of age and it's really interesting to me that until the 1980s, right, uh, there were very few films made in Ireland and almost none made by Irish filmmakers, except, you know, people like 
Bob Quinn, who was just making his own movies on his own, but not with any kind of real funding behind him. Um, Cahill Black, I think as well, maybe made a couple of movies in the 70s. But um, Neil Jordan and Jim Sheridan, but all the films we know of in Ireland before that, which are like Ryan's Daughter, The Quiet Man, Odd Man Out, can you think of any others? Um, they were all made yeah. by foreigners. Right. Yeah. And, that is strange. you know, yeah, and Shane Mary Doyle is an Irish documentarian. He told me once that um, they used Houston Station in Dublin as a location for the Great Train Robbery, which was uh, a British film. And Irish audiences flocked to that movie. And when they saw Houston on screen, roared with joy and applauded. Right. And that's really interesting to me to go, people are so hungry to see their own world reflected on screen, especially on the big screen. And it's interesting that our view of ourselves was being mediated. Oh, Man of Aaron, you know, so Robert O'Flaherty, you know, but like making those films and, you know, we know that like Man of Aaron purported to be a documentary, but a lot of it was fictionalized, you know, now in fairness, the rules about what a documentary was and wasn't hadn't really fully been agreed then. So, but we were getting a version of ourselves reflected back to us, which certainly in John Ford's case with The Quiet Man was highly romanticized, you know? Um, so it was only in the 1980s. So that's like 40 years ago, you know, um, that mainstream films made by Irish filmmakers started to exist. Right. And the film board was created, and we have to say, you know, thank you to Michael D um, for helping with that. But that 40 years of consistent investment has allowed a generation of filmmakers to learn. And, you know, you cannot expect... There's no studio in Hollywood with the best resources that every film is a win, you know? Right. So you can't expect that every film will be a win. But it's really interesting to see that with all of that investment, that more of the films that we make are going to connect with audiences, both here and abroad. If we're talking about internationally, I go to see Marvel films because I'm interested in what the audience is in. But by and large, I'm very bored by them. Right. Uh, not least because I find they almost always culminate with a physical fight. So <laughs> I quite liked Wonder Woman, but I will just go like I go in with like very low expectations to movies like that. But I said to a friend of mine, I wept while I was watching Wonder Woman. And she said, oh, yeah, there's an article about that. I was like, I don't know why. I must be, you know, over-emotional in some way that I don't understand. And she said, oh, no, someone's written an article about why women are crying while watching Wonder Woman. And as I recall it, the basis of that is that as a little girl, you grow up watching movies. And when I was a little girl, you know, in the 70s and 80s, in the movies, like, men would get into a fight and the woman would stand to one side going, ah, oh, no. Please stop fighting. Yeah. And as a kid, 
who doesn't understand gender roles, also because I was lucky enough to be a little girl in the 70s um, when feminism was a thing. Um, you know, I was like, why is she not getting involved? I would get involved. What's going on there? It was just very frustrating. Yeah. But I hadn't realised how deep in the race it was. So that moment in Wonder Woman where they're going through the trenches and she says, hang on, those people over there need help. And the men all go, there's nothing we can do about that. We're on our own mission. And she goes, oh, no, I'm going to the rescue. That was where I started to weep. But this article then explained to me it was because I saw my avatar right not listen to men and yes get involved and use her strength um to be a protector and to get active and i you know found that really exciting and then my memory of three of that was you know she throws a fridge at david thewlis and he throws a car at her and i'm just like that's yeah. not interesting to me i was really yeah. hoping that the climax of Act 3 would be that she would use her smarts or understanding or compassion or, I don't know, yeah. a sense of community, like understanding of what cooperation and collaboration is to defeat yeah. her enemy. But that didn't happen. I do make an exception for Guardians of the Galaxy. I love that movie. Yeah, no, it's really fun. <laughs> but, um, but, by and large, I think those big spectacle movies are not that interested in story. And I don't really understand because story is eternal. So I don't believe that a generation has lost interest in it. But Gabriel Byrne, I got to interview him one time and he said, it's giving people who've grown up with video games the experience of being in the video game. Yes. And that's what's appealing about it for that generation. And, and I if like, it's made oh, money pretty before. Pretty good analysis. If it's made money before, then it's a safe bet to make money again. So the audience kind of feeds this when there's a demand for Marvel movies. We're going to see more of them until people vote with their feet and go to like a grown up drama. There will be less grown up dramas. Yeah, and there have always been kind of trashy movies um, that don't have a great deal of depth. But what's interesting to me is just that Marvel is, to me, so kind of shoddy on story when I'm like, how much did you spend? Would you not have spent another like 500 grand on a script? Do you know? Um, but as you say, their audiences are not really demanding that. So, and that's okay. Like everybody likes different things. Do you know what I rewatched again? I'd really encourage people to rewatch it um, recently. And I found the TV edit of it. Steven Spielberg's movie Duel. Oh. So it was a TV movie in the States. And because it was so good, they shot a bit more footage and released it as a 90 minute cinema movie here in Europe. It's so good. And Isn't that his debut? Almost directorial debut. I think he maybe had done some like an hour long TV before, but yeah, right. generally it's seen as his feature directorial debut, but it wasn't made for TV movie. He just was so good that they repackaged it as a cinema release here. Um, but it's really action driven. If you remember, you know, it's a guy on a motorway who overtakes a truck driver and then gets into a whole thing with him. And if you think that can't be plausibly sustained for an hour, watch the movie. 
And not only does do they sustain that tension, but they ratchet it up. But there's I just notice like it's almost all action driven, but right at the beginning, he's listening to some comedy on the radio. And the comedy is about a man supposedly speaking to a census taker on the phone saying, I don't know if I'm the head of the household because my wife is the primary breadwinner and I stay at home. And then he starts going, well, sometimes I wear a dress, you know, and sometimes I and it's about, it's in 1970s and it's like, it's about that male anxiety of I don't know what I am right. if I'm not the provider. Yeah. And they just, he just does that really subtly, but then you really understand everything that's driving what comes next, that it's like this masculinity okay. in crisis needing to assert itself. It's so yeah. interesting, you know, but apart from that, it's just a roller coaster ride. I really loved rewatching it. Did so, yeah, it's interesting to me that Marvel doesn't even. <laughs> the Fablemans, did you see it? I haven't seen it. No, it's um, really interesting. I was in Hollywood when it was actually in the cinemas and I I couldn't find anyone to go with me. I was so surprised. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I mean, obviously it's a really personal story for him. It's basically his life, based on his life. And there's a really great cameo at the end from David Lynch as a film director and an amazing kind of stroke of genius in the final shot which was kind of just caught me by surprise. I really recommend it. And Michelle Williams is great in it as well. So, yeah, it's beautifully done, obviously. Well, I have never seen her in a film that I don't love, you know. Yeah. Uh, I think When Lucy is one of my favourite films made by the Oregonian filmmaker Kelly Reichardt. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I could watch anything if uh, Michelle Williams is in it. Yeah. Listen, Mary-Kate, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, it was absolutely it's been my pleasure. lovely to talk to you. And I think this will be fascinating for my listeners to really learn from someone who has this expertise and this insight. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. So that was my conversation with Mary-Kate O'Flanagan. It was a privilege to get to talk to her again and to get to hear some of her insights. If you ever get the chance to attend one of her courses or masterclasses, you won't regret it. This has been Press Play and Surrender. Thank you for listening. Please consider subscribing wherever you find your podcasts.